want to start this section of what we're doing today with a question. Raise your hand if you love to run. I'm not going to point you out, Manny. I'm going to pretend you didn't raise your hand. So I went, I went online and uh, the, the Angels website had this picture of um, this Angels-sponsored 5K run for charity. And, right, and so they had this picture of the crowd of these people that are, that are running this 5K. And right in the front of the picture in the center of the frame is my friend Kevin. And his face just pops up on my screen. I'm like, hey, he's running. Like, guys, no one was chasing these people. And they were running anyways. And I have never understood that. I have always, always, always hated running. Even when I was in remarkable shape and was a competitive athlete, I hated running. And it was always hard for me. As a basketball player, you run just a bazillion miles in every practice. And I was always toward the end when we would run for distance and uh, conditioning. And, and it just seemed like it hurt me more than it hurt the other guys. I just always felt like, man, how do you guys do this? I am breathing so hard. You know, and the coach is running behind me, blowing a whistle in my ear, screaming about what a wimp I am and all this kind of stuff. And I'm just going, how does anyone do this? This is killing me. I think running with no one chasing you has to be the most questionable activity in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> I have never done it unless someone's chasing me or a coach is blowing a whistle. That's the only way I'm going to do it. Um, and I, I never really understood why until about two, two and a half years ago. Um, I was coming down a flight of stairs, not, not up 10 flights of stairs, down a flight of stairs. And when I got to the bottom of the stairs, I was so winded, I had to stop and rest. And I said, okay, I know I'm fat. I know I'm old but this doesn't seem right. And then I made the ridiculous mistake of telling my wife about that, which meant a trip to the emergency room, okay? Now, here's the thing. There's my little uh, clue for you guys. You know how sometimes you go to the emergency room and there's just people everywhere and there's a three-hour wait and all that kind of stuff? Two words get you right in, chest pains. You tell them I'm having chest pains, they don't even have you fill out paperwork, they just take you straight in. And I get in there with my chest pains, and they check me out, and they say, well, we're going to have to do an angiogram. And the next morning, they do this angiogram. They put this camera up inside my heart, and they're talking about how, boy, everything looks really good, no problems at all. We think everything's fine. And then my doctor says, uh-oh. And when your doctor says, uh-oh, you want to ask why. And so I said, uh, why uh-oh? And he said, well, it looks like uh, you have a faulty heart valve. And so I asked him to explain like what that meant. And he said, well, basically, you know, this valve in your heart has these three little, you know, cusps on it that open and close to let the blood in, but yours only has two. And I said, well, how did that happen? And he said, you were born that way. It's always been that way. And immediately my coach's faces flashed before my eyes. <laughs> And I thought, I want to call every one of these guys and show him my medical report. Um, 
because it turns out I was born with a defective heart valve. It was just congenital there. And, and so it has always held me back. It has always bothered me. And I didn't know it till it just got to the age where it had been working too hard for too long and it just decided it was gonna stop working. See, I had a faulty heart valve and I didn't even know it. And what was true for me physically is also true for countless people spiritually. Lots of us have a bad heart and we don't even know it. We've just been going through life thinking this is the way it's supposed to be and we don't even know we have a bad heart. And and I'm not talking about the muscle inside your chest that pumps the blood. I'm talking about that part of you that got broken in the eighth grade when what's-her-name said she just wants to be friends. That, That part of you. That part of you that like swells with pride when your kid gets an award, that, that part of you that aches over uh, hurting people, that part that allows you to love and laugh and cry and dream and hope, um, it's what poets and songwriters and preachers call the heart. It's that part of you that Solomon tells us in Proverbs, we should watch over with all diligence because from it flow the springs of life. And it's that part of us that James says causes a whole lot of problems in life. A lot of the problems that we face are caused by our own hearts. Did you ever see a movie called When a Stranger Calls? It came out in like the 70s and they remade it because when there's a particularly bad movie, they're required to remake it like three times. So this one's been remade multiple times. But if you don't know that the gist of the thing is This uh, teenage girl goes to babysit this wealthy family's kids in this big old house and she puts the kids to bed and now it's just a big, dark, creepy house and the phone rings and she answers the phone and there's a voice on the other end that says, have you checked the children lately? And she hangs up and runs up and checks on the children and the children are fine. And so she thinks so it's some kind of a prank and she goes down and a few minutes later the phone rings again, same voice, same guy, same message. And it just keeps happening and she finally calls the police and they figure out a way to trace the call. And so the next time the call comes in, they trace it and then the phone rings and it's the police calling. And when the police call, she answers the phone and they say, we trace the call, it's coming from inside the house. See, it's creepy when it's outside, but when it's inside, it's terrifying, right? All of a sudden, when you go, uh-oh, this, this threat, this problem is right here, that's when there's a major problem. It's coming from the inside of the house. And what James is trying to tell us is some of these problems that we're dealing with in our lives, they're coming from the inside of our hearts. It's this, this is not just a... Um, a problem that we, we sort of experience in passing, this is a problem with who we are, at the core of who we are. And so today, James is gonna tell us something truly terrifying. You see, your biggest problems are not coming from the outside, they're coming from the inside. And we're gonna see this in James chapter one, so if you don't already, if you haven't already turned to James, now's the time to do that. Uh, you should just put a bookmark in James if you, if you come regularly, because we're going to be in this book for the next couple of months. So <clears throat> go ahead and open a James chapter 1, 
And we're going to read together from uh, verses 13 to 15 as we begin. Here's what James says. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Okay, we're gonna break this down because James is describing the predictable pattern of sin. He's saying, listen, I know that sometimes we, we as Christians, we find ourselves like falling in a hole and stepping off of a cliff sin-wise, and we go, how did this happen? How did I get here? What went wrong? And James goes, I'm gonna explain to you what's going wrong. I'm gonna explain to you how it always works. There is a pattern to the way sin develops in our life and how it works, and he's gonna try to help us avoid that pattern. And the first thing he wants to do is make sure that we know whose fault the sin is. Because we love to blame other people for our sin, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. We love to blame other people for our sin. And we live in a society where there is an acceptable excuse for almost everything, right? Nothing is anyone's fault. There is an excuse, there is a, a condition, there is a label, there is a syndrome to explain why this happens in my life. It's not my fault that I keep stealing from you. I'm a kleptomaniac and it's because of the way my parents raised me, right? Don't blame me for my pattern of drunkenness. I have an addictive personality and I just can't help it. I shouldn't be held accountable for my sexual decisions because after all, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. And that's what we have accepted as a society that our choices, we don't have to be responsible for. And it doesn't seem to matter what the issue is. When we mess up, we hate to admit that it's our fault. And it seems universal. But then again, you can't really blame us for that. After all, we inherited this from our parents, Adam and Eve, right? See how easy this works? Let's think about how this whole thing got started. Keep your finger in James, but we're going to flip back to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to see how this whole pattern started taking place. Genesis chapter 3, while you're turning there, let me just tell you, God's created everything. He creates Adam and Eve, puts them in this perfect environment where they have perfect relationship with him, perfect relationship with each other. He says, I want to have a love relationship with you, and for that to be possible, you have to have a choice in the matter. So God doesn't just create human beings as robots. He creates us as people with choice. And because we have that choice, we can choose to love him. And because we choose to love him, that choice means something to him. And if he was to create us as robots and we have to say we love him and we have to obey him, then it wouldn't be love. And so he places in the middle of the garden this tree and he says, look, I know it looks good. I know it bears fruit, but don't eat the fruit of that tree because if you do, it will bring death. And of course, we know that it doesn't take very long for them to come up with the brilliant idea, hey, we should try this. Maybe God's trying to keep something from us, right? And so they eat the fruit of the tree, and immediately they're filled with shame. Immediately, for the first time in their life, they're experiencing the brokenness that comes with guilt and shame. And they want to hide, and they want to cover up, and they don't know what to do. And so they're hiding from God, and God comes looking for them. Verse 13 
of, or, and let's start with verse 8. Verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And here it comes. <clears throat> the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, there's been finger pointing going on for a long, long time. As long as people have been messing up, they have been blaming others for their mess ups. We love to point the finger at somebody else, so our propensity to sin is passed down to us through Adam and Eve because this leads to a curse and all of creation is cursed and now we have sin and death and we inherit the sin nature from our parents, right? And so in that sense, we can go, well, see, it really isn't our fault. This is all Adam and Eve's fault. This all comes down to them. If it hadn't been for them, we would, have, we would be fine because we would have never messed up. Ah, but not so fast. See, there are two major problems that confront people. One is the issue of sin, which is what we just described. That because of the fall, because of the curse that comes, every one of us inherits the nature to sin through our parents, right? And they got it from their parents and all the way up the chain. And so that's called sin. That's called the condition of sin. Because we have this condition of sin, uh, we commit sins. But that leads us to our second problem. The second problem is not sin, but sins. You see, sins are those acts that we commit by choice. And if you think, hey, we can't help it because we inherited this sin nature, just remember, Adam and Eve did not have a sin nature, and they chose to sin, right? So here's the deal. I don't know how highly you think of yourself, but I promise you, even if Adam and Eve had never sinned and nobody had sinned in all of these years between Adam and Eve and now, I would be the one. I would have done it. I would have rebelled against God. There are so many times when I have acted in rebellion against God, knowing exactly what I was doing and choosing to do it anyway. I wish I could say that I wouldn't, but I sin by choice. And I'm sure that's not true of any of the rest of you, but it's true of me. And so we have these two problems. Sin is the nature that we inherit that causes us to be sinners. So you can say we uh, sin because we're sinners, but you can also say we're sinners because we sin. Both of those things are true. But when we sin, we love to blame others. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. But did you notice who they were really blaming? Go back and look again with me. Pick it up uh, in verse um, 12. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. It was the woman, God, and you gave her to me. I did not ask for this woman. I went to sleep, I woke up, and there she was, rearranging the furniture. And, and you gave her to me. And then when, when he confronts Eve about it, 
what does she say? The serpent deceived me. Where did the serpent come from? Who's, who created the serpent? God. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, God, we're not going to take responsibility for our rebellion because it's really your fault. If you hadn't, then I wouldn't. And James says, listen, I hate to burst your bubble, but you don't get to blame God when you mess up. Go back to James and let's see how he tells us. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Let me just take a second here and go off my notes, a little side note. I can give you a hint that will be truly, truly helpful to you if you'll use it. So many times in life when we get afraid or we get confused or we start to doubt or we believe a lie, the way we can combat that is to stop and think about what we know to be true about God. Stop and think about who God is. I'm so terrified. The what ifs in my life are just caving in on me and I'm just so full of anxiety and fear. Okay, let's stop and think about who God is. He's the creator of the universe. He's all-powerful. He loves me with an unconditional love. He, he uh, never changes. He uh, has all authority. He's sovereign. He has dominion over everything. If these things are true about God and I'm a child of God and he has pledged his love and devotion to me, then why do I need to live in fear and anxiety? When I start to turn my mind back to who God is, then it will keep me from going off on some paths that I have no business going down. Don't forget who God is. Ask yourself, what do I know to be true about God? Because he never changes. So if it isn't God who tempts us, it says, he does not tempt anyone and he cannot be tempted. It's his nature. James is arguing from the nature of God. He cannot be tempted. He is incorruptible by his nature. He cannot be anything other than he is. So he can't be tempted and he does not tempt anyone because he forbids us to sin. If he tempted us to sin, he would have to be unjust and he is not unjust. He is just. So when we remember what's true about God, we're often kept from falling off these cliffs. So if God doesn't tempt us, how does the whole thing really work? James explains it by using the uh, analogy of sort of the cycle of life. He talks about conception, birth, and death. Look at verse 14. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, conception, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Conception, birth, and death. My sins start in my heart. I have a faulty heart. And that's true for all of us, even after we come to know Jesus. Even after we come to know Jesus, and this is a common misunderstanding among Christians, even after we come to know Jesus, our heart is not yet made perfect. Theologians use these theological terms, justification and sanctification. Justification means that moment in which uh, we enter into a saving relationship with Jesus and all of our sins are wiped away. We are no longer held accountable. We are no longer guilty. It's a legal term. It means that you are no longer found guilty. You have been acquitted. 
Okay, that's what justification is. And at the moment of justification, when you come to know Christ, at that moment, the process of sanctification begins and it continues on as long as you're on this side of heaven. As long as you're in this earth, you're in this process of sanctification. Sanctification is this lifelong process of becoming like Jesus. And it's a process, amen? Does not happen overnight. It is a process of him shaping us and molding us and us making mistakes and learning and growing. And we go through this process of him shaping us into the image of Christ. And as long as we are on this side of heaven, we're going to struggle against what theologians call the flesh. And when they talk about the flesh, they're not literally talking about your flesh and blood. They're literally uh, using that picture as an analogy The flesh describes that pull that is working on us, that part of us that still wants to be selfish, that part that still wants to be proud, still wants to be rebellious, still wants to rule our own lives. The flesh is something that we are all dealing with even after you come to know Christ. So when I preach a message about, hey guys, we have a heart problem, that's not just for whoever is happening to hear this message who has not yet given their life to Jesus. Yes, when you give your life to Jesus, you are born again, you receive a new nature, but now you're dealing with the flesh, and you're going to keep dealing with the flesh for the rest of your life. And just in case you feel bad about yourself for that, I want to invite you to join me in Romans chapter 7, where we find one of the godliest men of all time telling us that he deals with the exact same problem. Romans chapter 7 is written by the Apostle Paul. And if you turn there, uh, you should turn there. We're going we're gonna to spend some time here. So if you turn there, you're going to join me in verse 14. And let's listen to how Paul describes this challenge of his struggle with the flesh. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want." But if I'm, going, if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Can anybody relate to that? The things I wish to do, I do not do, and the things I do not wish to do, I find myself doing. And he doesn't say it happens once. He's saying this is the ongoing pattern of my life, that even though I have been made free from sin, even though I have been, I had my... uh, 
had my uh, record wiped clean, even though Jesus has paid the price for my sin, even though I have a new nature, even though I have new spiritual life, still I find that as long as I am living this side of heaven, as long as I am in this body, I am still struggling with the things that the flesh desires. I still want to be my own king. I still want to do my own thing. I still want to serve uh, myself, I still want to go after the things that my flesh desires, even when God doesn't want those things for me. And I have struggled with this my whole Christian life because I, I, I trust that many of you have had the same experience. I, I've been so frustrated so many times over the years because I know that I know that I know I'm not putting on a show. I really, really, really want to please Jesus. In the depths of my being, I want to do what is honoring to God. I sincerely do. That's what Paul says about himself. And yet I find that there is this battle in my flesh so that I also want to do that which does not please Jesus, that which is not good for me, that which is not a blessing to others. I still want to do those things. So strangely, both of those things are true because to me it seems like once you decide that you're gonna love Jesus, life should be just about that. That decision was already made. But I have hated the fact that I have struggled with this for so long that I still want to do the things that he doesn't want me to do. And I was so glad when I found Romans 7 and I went, wow, if even the great apostle Paul dealt with this, maybe there's hope for me. Because we are stuck in the flesh. So James is describing the way this works. Yes, Satan is a tempter. Yes, Satan does tempt us. But when he fires those arrows of temptation, where does he aim them? He aims them at the points of our weakness. He aims them at our faulty heart. He aims them at this lust that James says still resides inside of us. Now, what is lust? We usually word, use the word lust in, in connection with sexual desires, but lust is not a sexual word. Lust simply means to strongly crave something that God has not given you, something that God does not want for you to have. And so he says, we've got this lust in our hearts and that's where those arrows are aimed. He's taking advantage of the fact that we're still in the flesh, that even as Christians, there's still a part of us that loves the things of the world more than we love the things of God. And we are all in the same boat, even Paul. So when we're tempted, um, this process begins. That lust that remains within us, that desire to have what God tells us that we cannot have, to do what God tells us not to do, is the starting place where sin is conceived. So we have conception, starts with the lust, and that gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. And, and the scripture tells us this, right? We know the wages of sin is death. So why do we do it? <laughs> why do we keep repeating this same deadly cycle over and over again in our lives? I think one reason is the fact that the consequences of our sin are very seldom immediate. You ever thought about that? Are the consequences of our sin are very seldom immediate. If, if, um, if every time you told a lie, immediately everyone knew all of your secrets, you would not go there, would you? If the minute that you had a lustful thought your marriage fell apart and your kids were taken away from you and all that would happen, 
You wouldn't start down the path to an affair that leads you to the place where that eventually happens. But because it doesn't happen that way, we have this idea that we can stick our toe in the water and just sort of wade in and enjoy it a little bit and it won't be so bad. And gradually we move to the place and we're caught up in a trap. Think of it this way. Picture what it's like for a fish when a fisherman throws that bait into the water. It looks good. I see it. I want it. I go for it. And everything is fine up until the point when I close my mouth on it and the hook sets. And then comes death. That's exactly the same system that Satan uses. So if you're a fisherman, you're like Satan. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Think of it this way. (laughs) This is morbid stuff. If you jump off a skyscraper, you will be dead very soon, right? Like, it's immediate. But if you eat too much, and you smoke too much, and you don't exercise, and you, you don't do any of those kind of things, uh, you also will die, but not right away. So we tend to keep doing what we want to do as long as the consequences are not immediate. Satan has a very successful scheme going on here. He knows we struggle with the flesh, He knows we lust after those things we shouldn't have, so he aims temptations at our faulty hearts, knowing we're likely to take the bait as long as the consequences are not immediate. And when it comes to our own sin, we are easily deceived. And that's why back in James chapter 1, he tells us in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And I love that that verse is right in the center of this passage that I've chosen today, that that verses 13, 14, and 15 lead up to this statement, do not be deceived, and that verses 16, 17, and 18 come after that statement, do not be deceived, and that statement, do not be deceived, is right in the center of the passage. The meaning of the passage is this, watch out, someone's trying to deceive you, and it's your own heart. Do not be deceived. Okay, what are we not supposed to be deceived about? Well, first of all, we're not supposed to be deceived about temptation. Temptation doesn't come from God, right? That's verses 13 through 15. We've been talking about that. So he tells us this whole thing about how temptation doesn't come from God. The problem is in you, which at first sounds really discouraging. But when you realize the significance of it, you go, wait a second. That means I'm not stuck. That means I don't have to stay in this rut that I'm in. That means there is hope for me right? So temptation doesn't come from God. Do not be deceived. And then do not be deceived. Blessings do come from God. That's what he's trying to get across to us. We have this tendency to mistrust God. We're afraid of God. And when we say it that way, it seems ridiculous. Why would anybody be afraid of God? Well, if you're not afraid of God, ask yourself this question. How easy is it for me to just be vulnerable with God, to open up my heart to him and let him do whatever he wants to do in my life? If that's difficult for you, as it is for me, then maybe we have a problem with being afraid of God. And what James is trying to tell us is, you guys, don't be deceived. God is not someone who is out to get you. God is someone who is out to bless you. He's telling us that God can be trusted with our lives. God never sets out to hurt us. He always sets out to bless us. The question is whether we'll be defensive toward God or whether we'll open ourselves up to him and experience the grace that he wants to pour out in our life in good gifts. 
you know, I was thinking about it. I could have avoided the heart surgery. I could have ignored the symptoms altogether. First of all, I should have never told my wife, right? I could have altered my activity so that not being able to breathe right wasn't a problem, right? If you're just sitting on the couch eating chips, you could probably get, get by with this. I, I could have gone that route. In fact, I actually even asked my surgeon about this. He came in and gave me the bad news and we're gonna have to do open heart surgery and it's gonna be a long recovery and very painful and all that. My first question was, okay, let's assume I don't wanna have the surgery. What, what is my option? And he just looked at me. And by the way, he was from USC, now that I think about it. <laughs> he, he just looked at me with no compassion in his voice at all. And he said, you can die. What, what if I don't want the surgery? You can die. No, but what if I, you can die. You mean I'll, yeah, you're gonna die, he said. I said, let's schedule the surgery. <laughs> All of a sudden, that decision became much easier when I understood the consequences of making the wrong decision were going to lead to death. And so I had the surgery. It's not easy to admit that our sin problems are our own fault. But if we never admit that we have a problem with sin, we will never accept the only cure for the problem, the grace of Jesus Christ. That, that cure is offered to us. Why would anyone take a cure for a sickness they don't know they have? And so God is not being mean to us. He's not being rude to us. He's not being unkind when he says, listen, look at me. Look me in the eye. You need to hear what I'm about to say. You have a heart problem. You need salvation. If you don't accept the salvation of Christ, you die spiritually. And he's telling us this not because he wants to make life worse for us, because he wants to make life better. If we don't accept God's grace, he tells us what the results will be. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's spelled out for us. And I think that must be why James puts sort of bookends around his thoughts about the nature of sin in our lives. Look at verse 12, leading into this passage. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. Remember, he's been talking about trials. For once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God wants to give you life, he says. So I know you're having trials, and I know that in the midst of your trials, you're tempted to blame God. You're tempted to put distance between you and God. You're te tempted to build a wall between you and God, because after all, God could have stopped this, and he didn't, and so he's letting you have these trials. And he says, do not be deceived. God is for you. God is for you. He's on your side. He is trying to bless you. You know, it's, it's like the child who is running from the parents who simply wants to give him something. God's trying to bless you. 
And, and then he tells us all about the nature of sin, and then we skip down to verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. It's the same message. God is a gift giver. God wants to bless you. He wants to give you something. He wants to pour something into your life. So when God does whatever it is that God does, and sometimes what God does to get our attention is no fun for us, amen? When God does whatever it is that God does to get your attention, it's not because he's trying to squash your life. It's because he's trying to give you life. And until we understand that, we're going to keep running from God, being afraid of God, and putting distance between him and us. So if we wrap this whole thing up, there is good news and bad news. And whenever there's good news and bad news, I like to start with the bad news. So here's the bad news. You and I have a problem with sin, and that problem is our fault. We don't get to blame anybody else. And by the way, sin brings forth death. So it's a big problem. But there's good news. The good news is that Jesus paid the price to remove our debt and set us free from the grip of sin and death. So he doesn't leave us in the situation that we're in. We are unable to purchase our own pardon, but he purchases our pardon for us. That's good news. He defeated sin for us on the cross. The scripture says that when Jesus suffered on the cross, all of the punishment for mankind's sins for all time were poured out upon him on that cross. He paid for our sins. And on the third day, he rose again. And when he rose again, he defeated death on our behalf. So sin has been defeated by him for us. That's a gift. Death has been defeated by him for us. That's a blessing. God has set out to bless us and he has a track record that proves he can be trusted to do it. Jesus is not trying to limit you. He is not trying to hold you back from anything. He came to set you free. And, and he came to give you the good and perfect gift of forgiveness of sins and life in him. And so, just take a second and, and personalize this for yourself. Ask yourself this question, what's the nature of the relationship between me and God? Am I, I know about God, but I don't know God? Have I ever really put my trust in him? Or did I just say, well, I, I believe he exists and that these stories about the cross and stuff are true? Or did I ever actually put my trust in him? And if you've never yet put your trust in Christ, to the point where you've been willing to say, Lord, I'm gonna give up control of my life and I'm gonna let you be Lord and Savior, then you're missing out on this incredible plan that God has for you, which the Bible calls life abundantly. And I just want you to understand today, wherever you are, whatever your story is, whatever your situation is, I want you to understand, God loves you so much that seeing you in the mess you've made for yourself he sent his son to die for you, to set you free. And the only thing that is keeping you from fully experiencing that life is your willingness to put your trust in him. And so if that's the case for you, don't leave this room today without doing that. 
Tomorrow is not promised. And why would you want a tomorrow that is apart from the Lord of life anyway? And so it's a simple transaction. It's a matter of me having a personal conversation with God. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I know I've made a mess of my own life and there is no way for me to get myself out of it. And I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to set me free from my sins. I accept Jesus as a Lord of my life. And, and the free gift of eternal life that comes with that lordship. And you just ask God to take over your life. We're going to have a time of prayer in a little while. That's your cue. Man, whatever I'm praying about, you should be just talking to God about your desire to have a personal relationship with him. And then talk to me or one of the other staff or some Christian friend about the decision that you've made. But before we close, I want to say a word to those of us, which is the majority of the people in the room, who already have that personal relationship with Jesus, that, that we've already been set free from our sin, we've already submitted our lives to the Lordship of Christ. I want you to know that even though you still may be struggling with sin, because you're still dealing with the flesh, you are not stuck See, God's word tells us very clearly, we don't have to stay in the holes that we fall into, or let's be honest, jump into. We don't have to stay in those holes. That God says, I'm here to pull you out. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does it mean to confess your sins? It doesn't mean tell God about it. God already knows about it, bad news. God already knows. It means to agree with God about your sin. It means to take his view of your sin. And so when I confess, I'm saying, Lord, not only have I, have I done this thing, but um, I haven't hated sin. I wanna hate sin like you hate sin. And so change my heart, God. If we confess, agree with God, and repent, turn from our sin and begin to live differently, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that good news? And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there is no temptation that has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful who gives a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So yes, temptation is coming. And yes, you have a problem of a lustful heart. And so you don't have to worry, though, that that means you can't win those battles. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, if you're in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you can say no to every temptation and yes to God in every situation. And, and because you struggle with the flesh, it's an uphill battle. Take it one temptation at a time. With every temptation, there is a way of escape. There is a way of escape, and that way of escape is obedience to God. So let me just say it this way. Take heart. God is not finished with you yet. But if you're in Christ, you are a child of God, just like we sang about today. If you're in Christ, you are no longer a slave to fear. You are no longer a slave to sin. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? So this freedom that we keep hearing about, God not only designed it for our lives, but made a way for us to live in it. We just have to be willing to start living that way. May today be the first day of the rest of our lives.
Let's pray together. God, we just want to come before you now humbly confessing that were it not for Jesus, were it not for your incredible sacrifice for us, Lord, we would not be worthy to come into your presence. But because of what Christ has done, you have made us free. And so we come now not as criminals afraid of a judge, but as children who love their father. And we come to you, God, asking that you would open our hearts so that we would stop closing off to you. We would stop blaming you for the things that we're upset about in our lives, that we would stop making excuses for our sin and just confess and repent and experience you to the fullest because of that. I pray for everyone within the sound of my voice who may not yet have ever truly given their lives to you. God, I pray that wherever they're sitting right now, you would just do business with their heart. I pray that they would confess that apart from you, they're lost and that they believe that Jesus is the son of God and he's paid the price for their sins and that they would accept your gift of grace and submit their, their lives to your lordship and that in so doing, they would begin to live in a way they never knew they could live. Help us all, God, to walk in the truth of your word. Are we asking in Jesus' name, amen.